This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Welcome back to Desair Digest, where we break down health concepts. This is our episode two on our series in mold. Last time we covered a lot of general information about what mold is, how it spreads, and highlighted some reasons why we think it is a little more prevalent today than it has been in the past. So today we're going to talk more about where it's found, and we're going to find that there are some places that are quite obvious, you know, places you're used to thinking about when it comes to mold, but there's also going to be some places that are going to be a little unusual and that you wouldn't expect to find mold. So one surprising place for me was I found a lot of mold on Google. Don't believe me? <laughs> Just do a search for it. Search for mold. You'll find it all over the place. <laughs> okay. Joking aside, there, are, there's a lot of, uh, you know, articles out there on mold exposure and mold issues and the Interesting thing is they range from all over the United States. Sometimes you can find stuff from all over the world. Mold is a prevalent issue. It is something that has been around as long as we have pretty much. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's something that is, I think, often overlooked or ignored how serious it just can be. Now, we see a lot of uptick or a lot of increase in articles and warnings and public service announcements about mold, usually following hurricanes. Um, Dr. Christ mentioned this briefly in his introduction last time, but last year, you know, there was a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Ian, that hit Florida. It was actually in Fort Myers in the Sanibel Island area, which we happen to be, you know, Dr. Kais and Dr. Frank and I used to be or were there for a conference a few months prior to that. And uh, after that, after her, the hurricane came through, caused a lot of damage, a lot of water got soaked in different places. There were a lot of warnings going out about mold exposure, you know, checking to make sure, um, working on cleaning up mold when it's found. And uh, some of it can be be very dangerous. You can also see this in areas like we talked about with tornadoes, where there's damage to buildings and then, you know, uh, thunderstorms, you know, rainstorms come in. A lot of moisture gets built up in different places. You know, we can see all these different areas where it spreads. So <clears throat> there's a lot of focus on how mold can kind of spread about just about anywhere. But, you know, there are some environments where mold doesn't really grow that well. You know, like in uh, New Mexico or, you know, those ar desert or arid places, you're not going to see as much. But you're also going to see that that leads to more kindling and more uh wildfires and stuff like that. So <clears throat> let's talk about a couple uh, instances or articles that I read. One in particular was a family in uh, Texas. 
a couple of years ago, they actually had to abandon their home because of how dangerous the mold exposure was. They found out that they had a poor roof repair after a storm and there was some faulty construction or something, but there was a lot of moisture built up and the for years, so they were in this home for eight to nine years and they had been experiencing all sorts of health issues. Um, one of the kids had developmental issues. They weren't developing as fast or as well as was expected for their age. Um, the wife had a lot of health issues, respiratory breathing issues, a lot of emotional issues. And for a lot of uh, the time, the husband was kind of overlooking this and saying, well, you're just, you know, just something you have to deal with or it's not that bad. But then when they further did research into it and after a while, everybody in the family was getting sick. And when they moved out, they left pretty much all their belongings, all their stuff. They had to kind of start all over from scratch. Thankfully, they had the money that they could afford to, you know, restart and all that, which a lot of people don't. But the people that came in afterwards and were examining the house found that there was mold all over the place. It had been dripping down the walls. It was, you know, like we talked about before, it doesn't take long for mold to really spread from one section all the way throughout the house. And it can infect and really affect people in a variety of different ways because everybody had different types of symptoms in the family but between losing the house losing most of their belongings and all the health issues that they had to struggle with there was a very heavy financial burden let alone physical emotional and relational burden in that family Another extreme case was, uh, again, following Hurricane Ian, there was a, uh, a couple, they were engaged, and they were renting this place, and they had a really high exposure. Um, they were unfortunately too poor to be able to move out, but they were too sick to really stay, and I think the thing that really got to them was just they didn't realize how serious the issue was going to be. Um, this... This guy would end up going to the hospital two times, or three times actually, but the first two times he went to the hospital, it was very severe. He had asthma, so he was more susceptible to it. They went and did testing with some specialists, and they found really high levels of aspergillus, the cladosporium, and penicillium uh, versions of mold. And the, uh, according to the article, the person who was doing the exams or the specialist said they were the highest recorded levels he had seen personally. Now, again, I said these people were very unfortunate in that they didn't have the finances or the means to really move out. But uh, the third time that this guy went in the hospital, he didn't make it out. And so again, this is in, in Florida following Hurricane Ian. So just last year. And the the real part about this that I really want to highlight is the fiance. Looking back, she said, if I would have known what I know now, I would have pitched a tent somewhere with my fiance and my kids just so he, he wouldn't have passed. I would have done whatever I had to just to make sure he would have lived. And one thing I want to get to is, you know, we, like I talked about last time in the last episode, we're really in a war against mold. If it invades your life, you have to really be in a warlike mindset to fight against it. And you don't want to take it for granted. You don't want to overlook. And I think 
the fact that they were ignorant of how dangerous it could be is really a big part of why we want to do these podcasts, why we would do this series, because ignorance isn't always bliss, and what you don't know can hurt you. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do with this series, we really want to highlight the danger, the seriousness of some of these issues, which, frankly, a lot of people listening here, a lot of people that come to our clinic are already well aware of a lot of the dangers because they're living through those. They're living through those hardships. But if we can make more people aware and more um, thinking about some of these possibilities instead of just going through the standard routes and going through the same misdiagnosis or the mislabels and the same hardships over and over again, if we can actually get thought processes moving closer into these directions and identify these things faster, we can limit the consequences and make it less severe for people. So again, that's a big part of what we want to do. Now, we have found that, like I said, advances in technology, advances in our industry have actually allowed some advances in mold uh, production and you know mold issues today as well. Um, so I'm going to let Luke go into that in a little more detail. Thanks, Dr. Caleb, and thanks for letting me follow that act up. So appreciate that. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, I want to highlight some architectural issues and what um, kind of the word on the street is as far as what architectures and construction companies are looking at as far as how they can have better, more uh, mold-conscious construction practices to uh, limit the uh, likelihood of mold growing. Um, so as we talked about last episode, mold typically has a strong affinity for dark places, moist or wet places and humid environments. Um, again, mold is widely prevalent in indoor and outdoor settings and sick building syndrome is strongly correlated to mold and specifically toxic black mold. I wanted to zero in on the indoor aspect of mold and how it, cor- how it relates to buildings and building materials. So since really that outbreak I mentioned last episode in the early 90s in Cleveland, Ohio, with the infants that had the pulmonary hemorrhaging or the lung bleeding, mold got a lot of bad PR and it put a lot of pressure on architects and construction companies to try to create cleaner and drier environments to once again eliminate the likelihood of mold toxicity in homes and buildings. So I thought it was interesting in a couple different articles here that I found online um, in Architect Magazine in 2007. So this would have been, shoot, 16 years ago. Um, Today, the predominance of organic building materials such as paper-faced drywall, wood framing, and plywood sheathing provide a food source for mold growth. So basically the reason I wanted to highlight that even though it's fairly obvious in the context of our conversation is this isn't some wacky alternative medicine conspiracy. This is mainstream thought even in 2007. And it's widely known that um, we have not had effective construction practices. And it can, it before that time was giving increased uh, risk of mold buildup and toxicity. Uh, another article that I found discussed the concept, the author laid out what would it take to in a perfect world, provide a mold-free guarantee. And so the author evaluates the question of whether or not that's even possible, but he said in a perfect world, and he basically laid out, I won't get too technical um, to bore our audience, but basically the moral of the story, it comes down to ensuring that the framing and the, the structure of the house has proper airflow, it's well ventilated, and the framing and wrapping of the house is done in such a way that it limits the likelihood of any kind of moisture congregation within it. Um, so 
fairly straightforward stuff. The other things to consider for um, just people living in their homes is make sure you keep proper ventilation in the house. Make sure that we're cleaning our vent covers. Um, use paint with mold inhibitors if possible. Using mold cleaner to stop the spread if you've identified mold in your house. And making sure that you're able to keep humidity levels pretty low in the house. Uh, so to reiterate, architects are greatly aware of mold toxicity and are trying to design more efficient buildings to prevent the likelihood of mold buildup and toxicity. And I really do think the, the best is yet to come with regards to clean building practices. So with that, I want to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Kyson, and he's going to talk about mold in the environment and with pets. Yes, we're going to talk about our furry little friends here. But before I do, I just want to kind of add on to what you're talking about there. So the interesting thing about drywall is it was created in the early 1900s, and it was considered a very cheap alternative to the lath and plaster that people used at that point in time. <clears throat> so it never really took off, you know, it was just kind of considered kind of a, a subpar material. And then after World War II, the housing crisis, and the boom, that became the standard. And so over... From the 50s on up, every house built from there on out, as a general rule, was built with sheetrock. And so, or drywall in this case. And as long as it remained dry, you still had a wall. That's the joke about it. So, but it's interesting because we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. And we talk about radiation and everything in another issue. But for decades, mold has had this bed of something to grow on. And then when we bring in radiation, it allows it to even grow at a higher level. So if you go back pre-drywall, most people use plaster and lath, which was a very hard substance for mold to grow on. It could, but it didn't take off real well. It was, it was like trying to put a giant log on a match to start a fire. It didn't take off well. But if you get the right kindling, which is what that paper is for that mold on the back, it can really just flare up and create a massive issue in your house within days. And so that's, as I think about that, I'm going, next time I build a house, I'm going to go through and I'm going to spray every stud when it's framed with anti-mold uh, paint on it. I'm going to paint all my drywall both mm -hmm. sides, seal it off before I even put it up. It cost me a little bit extra, but man, you think about how detrimental that is to you. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that should almost be a standard practice in some ways, especially if you have a basement or something like that. It should just be... Here's how you do this. You know, that should almost be something they put into practice or in place, or should at least be an option that a builder says, Hey, you want the anti mold package? Cost you a few thousand dollars more, but hey, you know, it may be worth it. it. You know, those are things that I look at and go, Okay, how do we make sure we do things like that? So, but if you are looking at building right now, that's something to consider and to look into on how to build a house in such a way that would help prevent any issues there, especially in areas that you're going to be like mechanical rooms, bathrooms, kitchens, where you could have a more of a water issue. I would definitely at least look into those areas. So, so going back to our homes and understanding how the attack on spores work. So when Dr. Bowers went to great depth on this and he really handled it well, I just want to kind of give a little bit different perspective on it. Uh, spores uh, have the ability to come in and attack you in so many different ways. You could go into work one day and one of your coworkers is bringing it in. It's on their clothes. It's, they had a huge water damage in their, in their house recently and all of a sudden it's flared up and all of a sudden they bring stuff in. They're sitting in the cubicle next to you. All of a sudden you're not feeling good and you're feeling sick. And you are now covered in the spores. And now you bring them home. And now you start spreading around your house or you go to church that night or you go to some other event and you start spreading these spores everywhere. And it's not just you. It's everyone in all environments that are being exposed to stuff and stirring the pot and spreading it around. And all these spores are just looking for that one little spot where they can just take off and grow and continue the cycle over and over again. And it's an important cycle in our environment 
but in our homes, it's not very welcome or in our workplaces. So as we talked about earlier, what brings it in? So Dr. Barry's talking, you can be on the bottom of your shoes. You're walking through the yard. You're doing yard work. You're coming in. It rained a couple days ago. The ground's still moist mm-hmm. and you're out there mowing, blowing all the stuff in the air. It's all over you. It's all over your clothes. And you come in the house and now you start spreading these things. So for outdoor molds, we have indoor molds, which can be even worse. We talked about quite a few of those there. And so our furry little friends, when they go outside, they bring stuff in, or you have furry little critters that aren't your friends that are managed to find their way in their houses. You know, I've seen uh, squirrels and, and uh, raccoons and things like that break into roosts and things like that when there's mold issues up there, or, or they can even actually break into your roof and get into your attic and create a lot of issues. And as they do that, they allow for water to start seeping into the home and other ways. So a lot of these things can actually create damage to the building to allow some of the stuff to come through. And it's it's really hard to be vigilant as all these different things that happen or can happen. So um, we just have to realize that as we go through life, we are either tracking things into our home or we're tracking things out into other areas. And so the best thing to do is to try to keep our homes as clean as possible and to limit the exposure and the place where we work. So as we go through life and, and we're being exposed to it. Now, some of the big areas here we're going to talk about in a couple of the episodes are where do you go building wise that you're exposed to it the most? So some of the recent articles and, and Dr. Barris talked about colleges, you know, dorms, college rooms, old buildings. Um, you get into churches, you get into government buildings, you get into your workspaces, you get into gyms, all these different areas there. Gyms are especially ones that have a wet saunas. Oh my goodness. Every time I've ever been to one of those, it's a huge moldy mess. They just don't keep it cleaned up enough. So you're in there breathing those spores in, in this wet environment, and they think it's hot enough to actually stop it. And it's not. What's interesting to me is I was reading an article a while back, and it said that the average spore had to get to a temperature of 500 degrees Fahrenheit to actually kill it. That's like an everlasting gobstopper from Willy Wonka. I mean, I think just, (laughs) you could burn your house down and still have a pile of spores left over. I mean, they are almost indestructible. And so it's very hard to be able to go through and and deal with these things. So I have two kids in college, and both of them have experienced mold issues in their dorms and their campus. And it has had an effect on them, not just mentally, you know, struggling, the stress, everything else they're under, and they suffered with it a bit. I mean, they still do well, but it's it has had an effect on them, and we've had to go through and clean up those issues where they were in their rooms or in the other buildings. And we've also brought air cleaners into the room, and we use ozone quite a bit to kill and clean that off. And so ozone's effective for a large amount of what you deal with as it goes through and, and, and fights the stuff off, but it's not the end-all be-all. And if you have a large infection in your walls, you're going to have to rip walls out. You're going to have to do something to get to it to get it out of there. But for spores in your environment, things are in the air. Ozone works it pretty good at keeping that down to a minimum and trying to really help you keep a, a healthier space there. So it, it's just being consciously aware of this invisible war that's going on or all around us that we're not conscious of. And I've always called mold the hidden health assassin because it will, it may not actually get sick from it, but it will weaken your immune system. So you have a high proclivity to getting sick with all these other things. So I have patients that come in while well, I'm always catching every fold, cold that comes along, every flu or whatever that comes along, I catch it. Well, why is that? 
part of it is their immune system shot. And we can go through and try to build that up. But if they keep getting hammered every single day, they go into a bathroom or sometimes we go through these different areas. I had a patient in New Hampshire that she was having some major mold issues. She went on a vacation and was living over in Italy for a while and she felt great. And every time she came back, there was an issue again. And so what she found out was that the ceiling above her shower had mold growing on it. And then as soon as her landlord cleaned that out, all of her mold issues went away. So every day she took a shower, mm-hmm. that moisture was going up and the spores are coming down. And she's being covered in it. It was really causing her a lot of problems, especially being in that wet human environment to begin with. So cleaning that up was a major boon for her health. And she was able to really start overcoming a lot of these other chronic issues that we were dealing with to get her even better results. So it's really exciting to see how dealing with something that was a minor issue, yet it was such a major problem with her getting healthy from everything else as being an issue. So we, uh, we deal with it on a daily basis, whether we're aware of it or not. It is constantly attacking us because especially our sciences, which are like the perfect growing environment, if you think about it, they're moist, they're dark, not a lot of air goes through there, but a little bit does. And so it allows them to take purchase there. And one of the interesting things about that is it really starts to create more issues for us, breathing-wise, energy production, all these other things, let alone being right in our limbic system area, which affects mood and a lot of other things there. So as a parent who sent my kids off to college, who did very well in high school and then go there and they struggle a little bit in college, again, the demand's different, but it was more of a mold issue that was really keeping them down creating more stress in life, creating more issues. And so dealing with that and cleaning that up was a very big part of getting them off to a better footing and a better start in college, let alone all the other wonderful things that most college kids deal with. So, all right. I guess that's Dr. Bowers talking about plumbing. (laughs) Bowers plumbing. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Kyson. Uh, Yeah, I have a lot of experience in plumbing growing up in in a household, uh, full of plumbers and even been a master plumber myself in years past uh and a lot of experiences with that in the last 30 40 years i've been in healthcare there's been a lot of that we have seen that goes on so a couple of the big questions we usually hear is well what's the difference between mold and mildew so first and foremost i want to kind of address that before we tear into some of this in general mildew just simply refers to certain kinds of mold or fungus right it's often usually uh, used generically to mention that it, it is a growth, and it's usually what we call a flat growth or flat growth habit or habitat in which it happens. It incl- whereas mold itself includes the spores that we've talked about, as Dr. Kaishan did, and we mentioned even in the last uh, uh, series as well, the last episode, that grow into multicellular filaments that we call the hyphae, right? And so that's what actually gives a different type of a growth habitat, right? Now, when we look at it, we know that mold could grow on anything, is what was just previously mentioned, including everything that has to do within kitchens and bathrooms. I want to talk about that. Whereas mildew most often lives on chair walls, windowsills, and other places where the moisture is high, but they don't spread as far. It may be linear in growth, but it takes forever, it seems, to grow, right? So we got to keep in mind that mold is usually in uh, unairy spaces, right, where it's damp. Uh, go back to think about what we just talked about in basements and attics, and those kind of things that are in there, okay? And generally speaking, that the mold will produce an odor where a mildew itself does not always produce an odor. It's more the damp moisture that you're smelling in that case, 
right? So then which is worse, mold or mildew? Well, obviously, the without a doubt, mold is way worse than mildew ever will be, right? But the difference is that it creates all these toxic molds, the mold does, and that's what causes us some serious health problems. Remember, as we talked about, and as Dr. Luke even talked about, the different types or colors of mold, even, you know, the green to the tan to the red, the yellow, so the black mold, those are what are particularly dangerous for humans, whereas mildew does not produce that type of a colored growth, generally speaking. Also, the fungi can appear within 48 hours of the spores landing on that surface, whereas a mildew takes a lot longer. So we got to realize that for mold to grow, it needs food. And I'm going to bring up a couple things that most people don't think about in a food source for mold. And that is number one, dust, right? Believe it or not, dust is a food source for mold because it's organic material that can be broken down. And an interesting fact that research has found out, it's estimated that up to 70 to 80% of dust is made up of human skin, which is a great food source for the mold. So when we're going to start talking about the bathroom, and that's where we're cleaning and we have a lot of debris, we have a lot of excrement, all these other things that occur inside a bathroom, that is a perfect environment for mold to grow when you give it a moist, damp area, and we have the problems that are already in there that can make that happen. So a couple of things I want to start off with what we jokingly call the no-nos, and I'm going to include these no-nos in the bathroom, uh, in, the, in all bathrooms, by the way, even if it's a half bath or small bath, uh, kitchens, and even the laundry room or washroom, any type of thing you have like that. And so the simple biggest no-nos that we have to have first and foremost is no carpet or no padding, right? And even if you have a like a, a airy rug or floor mat or something like that, it is going to have to be something that is cleaned regularly. I mean, generally, we're, we're talking about at least once a week, right? So the general rule we talk about is you should not have any carpet where there's any source of water, meaning the kitchen, the bathroom, and then the laundry room or washrooms, right? Second thing that we like to talk about is certain types of paneling. Now, I'm going to include all paneling, say no paneling anywhere in the house. And back in the 70s and 80s, when I was buying houses, repairing, remodeling those houses, when I first got married, we used a lot of paneling because it was cheap, it was quick, and you could change the entire room very fast. The problem was, kind of like what Dr. Keish mentioned earlier, it did not have anti-mold, anti-fungal spray on it. Right. And that is one of the environments that if a little bit of moisture gets out of that paneling, it's perfect uh, fodder for the mold to grow and just create all kinds of problems. And as we said earlier, it's quickly, easily to spread throughout the house. Now, in a lot of bathrooms, they'll use a special type of paneling that's supposed to be mold resistant. Right. And you see these in some of the commercial bathrooms, you know, the gas stations, you know, the, these kind of places where they use this type of uh, molding. I mean, the type of paneling that actually. Uh, is to prohibit the water getting through and into the walls. But if there's a seam or a crack or anything, it was, as I talked about earlier, on the water vapors that are able to get past that, it gets behind the paneling. And then once again, there's the perfect environment for the stuff to grow the mold to grow. So just reiterating the no-nos, no carpets and no paneling for sure in any area that is producing water has water into it. So then let's go into the bathroom and let's talk about some of the important things that we have to be really aware of. One of the first things I've already mentioned is the, the area rugs or if you have any type of padding on the floor. Uh, a lot of people use, you know, certain types of, uh, uh, I'm going to get that word out. Yeah. We're going to scratch that sentence, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the bathrooms, most people have some form of a pad or a rug or a mat that they like to get out of the shower on, step on. Some people use towels or like if you go to a hotel or someplace, they'll actually give you a towel that you lay on the floor. That way it can constantly be clean. So that's a great habit to get into. Just make sure you're doing that. All right. The other thing that we need to be aware of then is if you have tile in your bathroom, specifically your shower around your bathtub, because the tile and the caulking can separate and crack and move. And once again, water vapors can get behind that. And now you have a perfect environment for mold to grow. So at least on a weekly basis, you should check your tile and check your drywall or check the, the walls anywhere that's there that produces this. The other aspect we have to keep in mind is a lot of people like to take warm to hot showers, which produces a lot of water vapors that once again gets up on the ceiling. As Dr. Kaiser was talking about on one of his uh, patients where you know it was producing the mold and here come the spores. So we have to make sure that the walls are painted with a very high gloss type of a uh, paint that seals the wall so that the water vapors do not penetrate through that. And so if once again, if you're building a house, they have special sheetrock that is made and designed just for the bathrooms. And I would say do the entire bathroom with that, that whole area. The next thing we need to make sure is that you have proper ventilation in this bathroom. Uh, most of the newer homes always have a vent or a ventilation system, a fan in the bathrooms, but not always do people use that. And so we highly recommend that you turn that thing on the moment you go in, whether you defecate, urinate, shower, clean, it's best to get all those things out. Because remember, this is where the spores or the mold can grow and create spores. And so in theory, we want to get them out of that bathroom, out of that house. All right. So those are some simple things in there. I want to bring up a couple other things that aren't mentioned very often in the bathroom, and that is your toothbrush. Right. The toothbrush is a great place for mold to accumulate or spores to accumulate, because once again, you have a device that has been uh, in water and it's left out to dry. So if you don't cover your toothbrush, maybe that's something you should uh, you should consider. But after you're done brushing your teeth and you wash off the toothbrush, you need to dry that as thoroughly as you can before you put it in a container. And then the container must be aerated or have or allow air to move that to let that dry so you're not producing a mold environment. The other thing we want to talk about are sponges or bath cloths or wash cloths because if you constantly use them all the time and you aren't cleaning them very, very often, then once again, the spore is going to accumulate and start causing us problems in there. The last phase or next phase I want to go into is the kitchen. Now, we really think of the kitchen as being a place of producing good, life-giving food and health, those kind of things. And I want to just kind of touch base on a few of the factors that where we see a lot of problems where mold can potentially be developing or growing. And I'm going to talk about some that aren't so obvious, like the pantry, right? A lot of people will put certain things in the pantry. We talked about earlier bringing food in cans, boxes, bags from the store, and they've got exposed uh, spores on it. You put that in there. It's a dark environment. There's not so much a lot of uh, water in there, but there's an environment which they can actually be kept to be spread later. So make sure that you routinely clean out your pantry. Don't let, you know, uh, like most common thing I think off the top of my head is potatoes or sweet potatoes, that if you put those in your pantry and they have spores on them, that'll affect everything else that you have in there. Second thing I want to talk about is in the sponges, just like the washcloths. Most people use a sponge over and over and over a year. Research has shown that the average sponge has over 45 billion bacteria 
per square centimeter, and that is a perfect medium for mold to grow. So if you are going to use sponges in your kitchen, make sure that you put them in the dishwasher at the minimum once a week, if not several times a week, and make sure you have it on the, on the very highest heated dry cycle uh, for you to do that to keep them clean. Next thing I want to talk about are the rubber spatulas that most people use in, in their cooking and the preparation of their meals. And what they don't realize is that they'll just rinse them off. And if they have the type where the head pulls out from the handle, mold or the spores get down in there, mold can start developing. And now you're actually mixing that into your food. So once again, make sure you wash them thoroughly. You don't want to constantly be, re, re, be reusing them. Well, I can get that out. All right. And if you do have the type that separates, just make sure you pull it apart before you put it in the dishwasher. Now let's talk about the dishwasher. Since the dishwasher is supposedly there to clean and sanitize all your dirty dishes, we have to remember that, as Dr. Kyson talked about on one of the earlier episodes, is that we have potential leakage and we have issues for it. Just this morning, I walked in and there was a small leak underneath the, my dishwasher. And I'm like, how did that soap get there? So immediately I cleaned it up and I'm going to have to have somebody come out and take a look at that and figure out what's the problem with that. Okay. So the other thing that, that I, I like to highly recommend people do is once you open the dishwasher, remember it's hot, right? You need to let that air out. So after you empty the dishwasher, you put all the, the dishes away, just make sure that you let that stay open for a while, just to kind of air out and get all the other areas of potential in that dishwasher to, to dry out. All right. Then I want to talk real quick like about your blenders. How many times do you clean your blenders? A lot of times we just kind of rinse it out, or most people rinse it out. And yet down in the blade and underneath there where water can get down against that seal, that's an area for mold to grow. And what we're seeing is that people blend things up, and they're actually blending mold in with their foods. And this is another way that we get a lot of mold exposure. So after each time you use that blender, I know it seems crazy, but take it all apart and clean it and put that in the dishwasher and let that clean all that out. And then the next one that most people don't think about, but we see constantly a lot of, and that is the coffee maker. If you realize what was happening in that coffee maker, especially in the ones which you put the container already in it, you put that down and that seal doesn't seal correctly, you're creating a moldy environment. And we're talking about not just mildew, I mean a moldy environment. And so instead of just having coffee with cream and sugar, now you got it with mold. And maybe that's giving you that extra flavor. That's a joke. All right. So it's, it's been determined Earthy. that, yeah, that's right. That <laughs> the NSF, the International Household a Germ Study, found that the coffee reservoirs were some of the dirtiest places, not only in the kitchen, but in the entirety of the house. And that's where most mold grows. So if you use a coffee maker, any type of brewing cycle, you got to, Put the vinegar through it, and we'll give you all those tidbits later. But you need to keep that thing constantly cleaned out, once again, at least once or twice a week. And then let's talk about the microwave. Most people think that the mold would never grow in the microwave because it heats things up and is supposed to kill it. But what we found is that it is a prime place for mold growth to occur, especially if you forget to clean up the spills or the splatters that can occur. And sometimes when we have kids or younger people doing it, they aren't, don't constantly clean up after themselves, and that becomes a problem, right? So you got to make sure it keeps clean. Once again, we can use vinegar to help clean that out and take care of that. The next and last thing I want to talk about then is the refrigerator. In the refrigerators, we have ice and water dispensers. We have vegetable drawers, and we even have the drip pans underneath the back or the bottom of the refrigerator. 
perfect place for all this stuff to to develop and, and clean, I mean, and to grow. So I recommend that we highly clean them. At least the vegetable drawer ought to be cleaned out weekly. The ice and water dispensers ought to be cleaned out monthly. And then the drip pan ought to be cleaned out at least two to three times a year just to make sure we're getting that uh, cleaned out of there. A couple other places I want to talk about that most people forget is the backsplashes in our kitchens. Now, some are open, like one of my, my kitchens, a lot open air, so it doesn't, I don't have much there. But a lot of these that have a high backsplash, and actually, as we're cleaning, things kind of get up on there, and we don't see it. Remember, a spore can travel on air or on molecules of water and get on that backsplash, and especially if you have... Uh, the, the tile-based type, and you have the caulking in between there, or you have the, um, what's the word I'm just looking for? Grout. Grout. <laughs> grout, thank you. So make sure that if you have tile and then that you have the grout type that's in there, that is one place that absorbs the spores, and we can get mold developing in there. And then the last place we want to talk about is underneath the kitchen sink. How many times do we forget to look underneath the kitchen sink? Right. And if there's ever a chance that you're going to have some type of leakage, especially if you have the faucet that has a spray head on it and it dribbles down the that hose and it gets down underneath there and it starts dripping, you're going to create a very moldy environment. Right. So a couple last things I want to mention before I, I pass this on to Dr. Greg is obviously the general rule here is keeping the bathroom and the kitchen clean. I know that sounds like a silly statement, and most people think they wiped it down and they did it, but you need to be vigilant. As Dr. Caleb talked about, we're at war with this with this mold, and if we aren't vigilant to keep all these things clean, then we're creating the environment in which it grows. And so not only do we need to keep the kitchen and the bathroom clean, but I want to give you one other thing to kind of think about, and that is where you travel with food. So if you travel to your dining room table, if you travel to your kitchen, I'm excuse me, your den or your couch or your chair, and you drop food there, and we remember we said that spores can attach to any type of furniture, a chairs, any type of clothing material, all of a sudden you're keeping in or you're allowing an environment for mold to grow in your furniture just by translating food through it. So I'm constantly, it was after my kids and after my grandkids, you know, you got to make sure you carry that uh, on a plate or something. And if you make a mess right then, that's the time we clean it up. We don't let it wait. We don't you know, clean it up later and take it from there. So with all of that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Craig so he can go into greater detail for us. Thanks, Ben, for knocking off about 70% of what's on my list here. <laughs> so I, I need about 30 seconds and I'm done. So as you did mention, one of the places that we haven't talked about yet is vehicles. Think about how much time we spend in our vehicles over our lifetime. Uh, and this is also a place where mold can grow, especially none of us would ever have done that. But if you've ever driven through water and it gets, you know, just enough in into the uh, the car itself, it can get into the ventilation system, get into the carpeting, get in even to the fabrics. Or as he mentioned, too, you know, none of us ever eat food or drink in our vehicles as well. But mold, this is another place that mold can also grow. Some other odd places, thanks for stealing one of my big thunders, was going to be the toothbrush holder. I thought that was really kind of odd because I never thought about that. Uh, you also have the seal of the thermal cups that we drink from. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, big one. Think about that. You're, you know, we yeah. talked a lot about last time about how breathing in spores, but we're consuming spores here as well through what we drink, through what we eat. So 
kind of touch on that, like the tumblers that are real popular, the Yeti or whatever mm-hmm. brand you want to talk about there. Right. They have that rubber sill around the lid there that people will rinse off, but they never pull the sill off to see what's growing underneath there. Right. Same thing with like the, the blender, anything you have a rubber sill on right. has the potential to have that there. So it's, right. it's absolutely fascinating how many things we drink. One of the big ones for me that was the most horrifying as a parent was sippy cups. Mm-hmm. People never take those things apart and clean those things. They put milk all the stuff through there. Oh, I had yeah. so many kids that come in and drinking the stuff. They're showing all kinds of nasal issues and stuff. And you go and you pull these things apart, and there's growth all through these things. I mean, great, it doesn't spill anywhere, but my goodness, it's just poisoning the kids every time you refill it. you got to take those things apart. Right. Mm-hmm. So since you mentioned seals, let's also talk about the washing machine, especially front loaders. You can get mold that can grow in those seals, and now those those spores can get on your clothes can get in, you know, the air and there's another area as well. We talked, since we talked about that, that's clothing is an area, crawl spaces, ventilation systems, um, not only behind wallpaper, but also in the wallpaper itself. I thought it was interesting. Also chimneys, look out Santa. You know, be careful as you're coming down. Uh, filing cabinets. This is one I had recently. I had a bunch of old files from our office that I'm like, I was going through and organizing. I'm like, hmm, I don't feel so good. Wonder why. Uh, another area, welcome mats on our front house. And thought about that. Good you know, point, you yeah. step on the welcome mm-hmm. mat, you kick up those spores, you get them on your clothing, you bring them into your house. Water healers, heaters, ceiling tiles that were mentioned. Uh, food, you know, as talked about, you can consume uh, mold on your food and not even realize it. Also the dishes that they're on and potted plants as well. So any other ones that I haven't mentioned as odd places? So a couple things I want to add to it here. Uh, the first one is we talk about the washing machine and the baffles in there on the front loaders there that have an issue. And there's different things that you can get to uh, put into your washing machine to go through a cleaning cycle to clean a lot of the stuff up with that works pretty well. But on the baffles, it's better just to take them off, spray them down, clean them real good, open them up, make sure you get that all cleaned up. But it can accumulate in there because the spores are on our clothes. And when we wash them, they accumulate in there. Right. Now, I, I came across there's a device you can buy now that you can actually attach to your plumbing that goes into the washing machine that ozonates all the water going in there. And a lot of people are just using ozone to clean their clothes so they're not using the detergents or anything else. But this ozone actually goes out and kills all the stuff off in the washing machine as well. So it may be worth looking into if you're right. wanting to look for a little more healthy way of Washing your clothes right. and cleaning everything there is to add this ozone attachment to the inline of your water line there to actually ozonate that and clean that. Uh, touching back, I thought it was really great when we were talking about uh, toothbrush holders and toothbrush covers. I remember watching an episode of Mythbusters, and they wanted to determine how far your toothbrush needed to be away from the toilet to be safe yep. from fecal material. So what they did is they put one in the cup and they set it there next to the sink. And then they went through and they took like a hundred more and they taped them on the walls all around this bathroom. And they left it there for the staff to use for a week. And then they said a control went out in the hallway away from the bathroom. And so they went through and they found that, that everywhere in the bathroom got contaminated with fecal material. And what was worse was the one in the hallway also showed it. So, and this is fecal material. We're not even talking mold spores, which are much more prevalent and pass easier. So one of the things that I found that we do in my house that I'm a big fan of is we have UV holders for our toothbrush. So we can put them in there and the UV light will go through and kill everything off, cover it up and it keeps it well. I've even seen uh, UV uh, cleaners that have in the kitchen next to the sink for your uh, sponges and things like that, that you can actually use UV light. I think it was actually originally designed as a UV light for like phones and stuff, but people are using them for 
uh, right. all the stuff around the kitchen there too, to kill stuff off there to make it better. But yeah, ozone and ultraviolet are two big ones there. Um, and that's, those are, uh, just how prevalent it is. Right. So, well, and that, it, it kind of brings me back to what I was saying at the end of the last episode with all of these varied modes of exposure, it, it, not only just in what we breathe, but in what we're consuming, it's not surprising. It's so prevalent. And it also, you know, as we get, and we're going to talk about, uh, mycotoxins as well, it can go anywhere within your body. So any other thoughts, gentlemen? No, we'll just have to circle back to that about the bathroom and the parasite segments that are. Oh yeah, upcoming. Oh, yeah. So yeah, well that kind of ties into my closing here. So we do want to thank you again for joining us. We do hope it has been educational and not too disturbing. Join us next time when we'll actually talk about radiation and its effect on mold. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.